Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that this podcast contains the names of people who have died. Welcome to Australia on this day. I'm Michael Adams and today we're heading back to Wednesday the 9th of July 1952. That was the day an Aboriginal boxing champion took to the ring for the last time. 26-year-old Dave Sands from Kempsey in northern New South Wales had his sights set on a world title. And this fight on the 9th of July at Riverina Stadium in Wagga Wagga could put him another step closer to that goal. Dave was there that night to defend his Australian heavyweight title. But that wasn't the only national boxing crown that he held. Dave was also Australian middleweight and light heavyweight champion, and he held the British Empire middleweight crown. Dave's Wagga Wagga challenger was hard-hitting Jim Woods. He was three years younger, nearly a stone heavier, and had won his last seven fights, all but one of those knockouts. After Dave Sands, Jim was rated Australia's top heavyweight. The champ and the challenger stepped into the ring in front of a big crowd of Wagga Wagons who were wildly excited that an Australian title was being decided in their hometown. What they didn't know, what no one knew, was that this was to be Dave Sands' last fight. This showdown was scheduled for 15 three-minute rounds, but it was over in the fourth, when Dave Sands landed a blow to the side of Jim Wood's head that knocked him out. With the challenger on the canvas, Dave Sands was still Australia's heavyweight champion. Dave Sands was born David Ritchie at Burnt Ridge near Kempsey on the New South Wales north coast on the 26th of February 1926. He was the fifth child to Mabel and George, who were Dungutty people. His dad and uncle had been successful North Coast boxers and Dave and his four brothers, Percy, Alfie, Clem and Russell, followed in their footsteps. George died in 1935, leaving Mabel to raise the boys and leaving them to earn what they could as timber cutters to provide for the family, which included three sisters. This hard timber cutting work also kept the Ritchie brothers in top physical condition. In 1939, Dave's older brother, Percy, started boxing professionally under the name Richie Sands in Newcastle for boxing manager Tom Maguire. Richie won a lot of fights, and Dave came south to join him and Maguire in 1940. At first, Dave was an errand boy, but Maguire saw his potential and put him into training. Taking his brother's ring surname, Dave became Dave Sands and made his Newcastle debut at age 15 in August 1941. Young Dave knocked his opponent out in the first round, which really set the stage for a career in which he'd KO about two-thirds of the men he faced. By the end of 1944, Dave had won 26 of 33 fights, including three big ones in Brisbane. Despite his rapid-fire, hard-hitting style, he never seemed to tire. Typical newspaper descriptions of his pugilistic power included fists like cannonballs and dynamite in both hands. 
Though he was explosive in the ring, Dave was a gentleman outside of it, and he was delighted to meet Newcastle girl Bessie Burns. Bessie was white, and though mixed-race couples were frowned on at the time, Dave and Bessie got married on the 11th of August, 1945. In addition to putting a ring on the finger of the woman he loved, Dave was having a great 1945 in the ring, and he'd win all 11 of his fights. The highlight came in October, when at Newcastle Stadium, Dave beat Max Cameron to take the middleweight championship of New South Wales. The following May, in front of 13,000 fans at the Sydney Stadium, Dave fought Jack Kirkman for the Australian middleweight title. It was a slugfest, but Dave was always in control and he put his opponent down in the 12th round. Three months later, again at Sydney Stadium, Dave took on Jack Johnson for the Australian light heavyweight title and knocked him out in the fourth round. At just 20 years of age, Dave was the youngest ever dual title holder in Australia. And as Jack Johnson also held the Australian heavyweight title, Dave now had a claim to that, especially when he beat him again. Then, in November 1946, Dave knocked out Alf Gallagher. Here's how leading boxing writer F.W. Corbett described that fight in the Sydney Sun newspaper. Quote, Knocked out in the third after a round one punch from which he didn't recover, Alf Gallagher spent more time on the canvas taking counts than he did on his feet at the stadium last night. He was knocked down for the phenomenal number of 10 times in less than eight and a half minutes of glove work. Here was the thing. Given that Alf Gallagher was also a contender for Jack Johnson's heavyweight crown, Dave's manager Tom Maguire got on the blower to F.W. Corbett to claim the Australian heavyweight title. Corbett couldn't argue with it and wrote in his column, quote, A man can do no more to demonstrate his superiority. I am right on the side of Sands. Without a doubt, he should be proclaimed heavyweight champion. It'd be four years before Dave got that title officially, when he eventually had a rematch with Gallagher and KO'd him. While Dave was almost unbeatable in the ring, also laying waste to a succession of imported boxers, he was outside the ring, quiet and gentlemanly, and utterly devoted to Bessie and their two little daughters. So much so that Dave became really homesick whenever he was away from his home in Stockton, even if he was just down in Sydney for a couple of days. But if Dave wanted to be world champion, that meant travelling the world. Having defended his two official Australian titles and having made a triumphant tour of New Zealand, Dave and his manager Tom Maguire went to London. They arrived in March 1949 amid a fanfare of British publicity that hyped Dave to the heavens. But the truth was, he wasn't fighting fit. David suffered a severe swollen arm as a result of his vaccination. And in his first fight, he was beaten on points by American-Polish fighter Tommy Yaros, who was ranked fourth in the world in the light heavyweight division. Dave didn't just suffer a defeat, he suffered a backlash. And this wasn't helped by his next fight against Frenchman Lucien Carboche. Although Dave won on points, this unexciting fight won him few fans. Back home in Australia, fans were deflated that Dave Sands was seeming to flame out. Then he started to fire. He knocked out English middleweight Jackie Jones and scored a decisive points victory over Dutchman Jan de Bruin. Next, he cleaned up Frenchman Robert Villemain in a ferocious fighting display. 
What was exciting about this victory was that Villemain had recently almost beat American Jake LaMotta for the world middleweight title. Now it really looked like Dave Sands was in range of that crown. That hope seemed to be confirmed on the 6th of September 1949 in front of 10,000 fans at London's Haringey Stadium. There, Dave knocked out Dick Turpin in the first round to claim the British Empire middleweight title. Dave came back to Australia bigger than ever, his fans having listened to his British fights live on radio and then thrilled to them all over again in the newsreels. He was on top of the world on the 7th of November 1949 in Newcastle when driving in a car with Bessie, his brother Clem and his brother's wife. As they approached a bridge, the steering locked and Dave's car went over a river embankment and flipped into mangroves. The champ was hurled out onto rocks while the others stayed in the vehicle which landed in the water on its wheels. Miraculously, he escaped with minor back injuries, but they'd put him out of the ring for six weeks until the start of the new year. In 1950, Dave's plans to challenge for the world middleweight title were thwarted. He was reluctant to leave his family again so soon for a trip to the UK, and he and his manager Tom Maguire were increasingly on the outs. But he'd recovered from the accident and was back in fighting shape beating American Carl Olsen, who'd be future middleweight champion in Sydney in March 1950. In July 1951, Dave and Tom McGuire returned to the UK, hoping to fight Sugar Ray Robinson, who'd taken the world middleweight title from Jake LaMotta in February. But they couldn't get a fight with Sugar Ray, who wound up losing the title to Randolph Turpin, brother of Dick Turpin. So Dave and Tom went to America, where Dave beat Carl Olsen again, this time in front of a huge crowd in Chicago. Returning to Australia, Dave continued to pretty much beat all comers. Though in late 1951, he and Tom McGuire finally parted ways, and in February the next year, Dave had a new manager named Bede Kerr. Kerr was a man with a plan. He saw Dave fighting for two more years before retiring. During that time, he saw Dave winning £20,000 and taking out the world middleweight title. From February to June 1953, Dave fought three times, winning each fight. Then, on the 9th of July 1952, he clobbered Jim Woods at Wagga Wagga to retain his Australian heavyweight title. Over the next month, offers flowed in, including from a UK promoter who wanted Dave to fight Randolph Turpin in London, and from a US outfit that wanted Dave to take on Sugar Ray Robinson or Carl Olsen in San Francisco. There was every chance that this schedule of fights would give him a shot at the world middleweight title. They'd also offer huge paydays. Dave needed the money because he wasn't just broke, he was in debt. And Bessie, who'd had a baby son in 1951, was now seven months pregnant with their fourth child. Though on paper Dave's winnings had been about £24,000 over the past six years, those were his gross earnings. You'd arrive at the real figure by deducting the amount charged by partnering boxing promoters, what Dave had had to fork out for his and Tom's travel and accommodation expenses, and the 25% that his manager had been taking. Then... From what was left, Dave had to pay tax. He'd had enough to pay off some of the house he'd bought in Stockton and to look after Bessie and the kids. As for spending on himself, his only vices were movies and the boogie-woogie records that he loved so dearly. 
Not helping the situation was that Dave was inherently generous and was always lending money to whoever was in need. Dave's next fight was to be on the 21st of August at Leichhardt Stadium against Kiwi Don Mullet. And his brother Alfie also had a fight coming up. So to get much needed money and to get into top fighting condition, the brothers were heading to a timber cutting camp and they were taking a dozen family members and friends along with them. Dave and Bessie spent the day of the 11th of August 1952 celebrating their seventh wedding anniversary. But he, Alfie and the others had to head off that night. At 6.30pm, Dave was at the wheel of his truck as it approached a danger spot on Wangat Road, five miles north of Dungog. There'd been two fatalities right there in the past few months and the council was doing roadworks to create a deviation that was hopefully going to make things safer. But bad weather in the past fortnight had delayed work and the deviation wasn't yet in use. It's not certain what happened, but Dave's truck hit a two-foot embankment, which, though small, was enough to flip the five-ton vehicle. Dave Sands was crushed beneath the truck, suffering head and chest injuries. Eight others sustained minor injuries, including bruises, cuts and broken bones. Dave was pulled from the wreckage alive but unconscious and rushed to Dungog Cottage Hospital. Three hours later, at 9.30pm, having never regained consciousness, the champion lost his final fight. Dave Sands' death led to an outpouring of grief on the streets of Newcastle, where the rain-soaked route from the funeral home to the cemetery was lined by thousands of mourners. Fans, newspaper reporters and boxing luminaries around Australia and the world were also in shock. Without exception, those writing about Dave remembered him as much for his prowess inside the ring as for the way he'd conducted himself outside of it. F.W. Corbett wrote, quote, A figure of gentility outside the ropes, Sands was always courteous and reticent. He would have worn the world middleweight crown with all his unruffled good bearing. Of course, this was a big part of the sadness, that he'd been robbed of the chance to realise his world-beating potential. And it wasn't just Aussies saying it either. New York Rings magazine editor Nat Fletcher said, Sands died just when the way was being paved for him to fight his way to a world title match. He added, he was the best Australian boxer since Les Darcy. But the best tribute came a year later in Madison Square Garden when Carl Olsen, who'd just won the world middleweight crown, said simply, If Dave Sands was alive, this title would be his. Trying to determine why Dave died, an inquest was held. It concluded that it had simply been an accident. He hadn't been negligent and there was no alcohol found in his system. But something I read made me wonder if there might have been an inquiry into whether the roadworks were adequately signposted. Here's what one passenger said right after the accident. Quote, Dave appeared to swing the truck suddenly to change from the main road to the deviation. The truck slipped over the edge and rolled over. The sadness over the death of Dave Sands was compounded by the fact that Bessie and the kids had been left with nothing except a debt of around £2,700. That's when Reg Grundy, the future TV pioneer who'd bring us Wheel of Fortune and the Sullivans, stepped in to help. Back then, Reg Grundy had just begun his media career as Radio 2SM's boxing and wrestling commentator, and he used this influence to organise and promote charity fights. 
Reg, in conjunction with Newcastle's mayor, raised more than £3,000, paying off Dave's debts and leaving Bessie with a little money to tide her over. If you want to know more about Dave Sands, Australian newspapers and magazines from the 1940s and early 1950s are full of stories about him, and these papers are free to search and download at the National Library of Australia's Trove database. You can also see Dave in action via newsreel footage found on YouTube. Additionally, the 2006 book Remembering Aboriginal Heroes by John Ramsland and Christopher Mooney contains a good chapter on Dave in which they show how his Aboriginality at the time was consistently downplayed or erased by newspaper writers even as they referred to his African-American opponents as Negro or dark-skinned. What's really surprising to me is that there hasn't been a full biography written about Dave Sands, given the racism he had to overcome and the rich drama, triumph and tragedy of his life. And surely, there has to be a movie made about the man the Sports Australia Hall of Fame describes as, quote, one of the greatest boxers never to have won a world title. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Australia on This Day. Make sure you're subscribed to get every episode as soon as it's released. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could leave a review and rating at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're after more tales from our fascinating history, check out my other show, Forgotten Australia. This podcast was produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. Thanks for listening and catch you tomorrow. 